Hello everybody, Glass Half Dead here. In today's episode of Vantage Point, I am going to be reading all of the narrative section of Soul Shackle. If you are watching this from my YouTube channel, uh, this is also a podcast. If you really like what I'm doing here, consider checking me out on Patreon. Okay, let's go. Kill Team Soul Shackle Narrative Arenas of Plenty Some liken the warp to an ocean. Seers, scholars, and shipmasters talk of its dimensionless energies in terms of currents, swells, and eddies. Like any ocean, danger lurks unbound, and, for uncounted ages, vessels braving the warp have risked foundering in its depths. Merged with one another and twisted into havens of the malign, the resulting space hulks are relished as stimulating hunting grounds by the Xenos Drakari. Long before the forebears of the Drakari rose to the zenith of their power tens of millions of years ago, numerous spacefaring species had already attempted to navigate the warp, a realm of energy, emotion, and madness, to overcome the vast distances between the stars. The Drukhari and other strands of the Eldari race understand it more than most, but even their advanced technology cannot protect against the warp's dramatic swells of psychic power. The warp is haunted by hungry entities and is ever troubled by storm-like seizures and unnatural tides. Ships that attempt to cross through the warp from one region of real space to another rely on varied technological or arcane means to survive. Such mortal endeavours to maintain just enough stability to reach a destination often fail in the face of the warp's violent tempers. Ships are crippled or smashed asunder before reaching real space again. Even vessels that do not intend to enter the warp risk falling into it. Warp rifts can suddenly yawn wide, swallowing whole ships and orbital stations as well as entire planets. Even the cruel Drukhari, who carefully avoid contact with the warp more than most, can fall prey to it. The webway is a twilight realm of labyrinthine spars built by unknown architects between real space and the warp, and sheltered from both. Ever since catastrophe snuffed out the Eldari Empire millennia ago, the Drukhari's predatory people have occupied a sprawling domain within the webway. From here, the Drukhari's raiding fleets slip out through portals that enable them to strike across the galaxy. It is for souls and flesh to torment and terrorise that the Drukhari raid, as well as to stir their jaded senses. In the deadly innards of space hulks, these sadistic torturers find great sport indeed to satisfy their needs. Within the churning infinity of the warp, remnants of ships are crushed and twisted together by its infernal energies. Time, space, and other fundamentals of reality do not work in the same way there, and these amalgams of wreckage and other matter are fused in insane geometries. Through capricious forces, they are spat back out into real space at random intervals as deformed and lumpen ghost ships, bloated with the accretion of countless vessels and saturated with the mutating power of the warp. They may spend centuries drifting through the galaxy, attracting the insane, the malignant, and the desperate before vanishing back into the warp for eons. In the Eldari tongue, space hulks are sometimes referred to as Kleis Am Haisha Ol, or abominations birthed from pits of terror, nightmare, and misery.
To the Drukhari, such an epithet conveys notions of pleasurable relish as their own dark city of Komora is a place of horror and torment. Space hulks harbour all manner of dangerous aliens and strange monsters, as well as criminals, heretics and far worse. These denizens represent both danger and opportunity to the Drukhari, who have an endless thirst for captives to provide gory entertainment in Kimura's arenas. Though their superior technology and sneering arrogance mean that the artifacts of other races are of little interest to them, space hulks may contain fragments of the Eldari's vanished empire. Such relics from their race's golden age hold great attraction, whether to employ in some scheme of political outmaneuvering or gruesome corruption. Some areas of space hulks are open to vacuum, laced with toxic seepage or flooded with corrosive fluids. Yawning chasms miles deep open amid hulk quakes that rumble as layers of wreckage and rock settle. These dangers and countless more are viewed by the Drukhari as worthwhile trials for their athletic agility. Warriors who fall to them are callously despised for their weakness. The one danger that holds a true frisson of terror for the Drukhari is a Space Hulk's potential to re-enter the warp without warning. From supernatural causes to a constituent ship's warp engines firing at random, the Drukhari can find themselves in the warp, unprotected. There, they are prey for demon kind and an eternity of torment that only Eldari can appreciate and fear. The Gallodar. Of the myriad abominations that have burst from the warp and into real space, no two are alike. The Space Hulk that would be called the Gallodark by the Imperium is one. A colossal monstrosity the size of a moon, it is formed from countless craft and shards of space-born debris. For many intruders, it is the first and last Space Hulk they will ever see. The warp is known by many names. Imperial commanders sometimes refer to it as the Immaterium or the Empyrean. Others know it as the Great Ocean or the Sea of Souls. Within the timeless realm, space hawks may drift for millennia, absorbing new fragments of wreckage as empiric tides cast them through howling gulfs of energy. Change is among the abiding traits of anything touched by the warp, and space hawks are no different. They grow, fracture and break apart, reforming in alternate combinations over eons. Thus, they may not even be recognised as the same agglomeration that has been witnessed before. Some are even translocated in time and may be thrust out into real space long after they last vanished or even before the moment of their origin. The Space Hulk referred to as the Gallodark by the Imperium has been known by a number of names. Its size, shape and constituent wrecks being so different each time, it appeared in real space that it was never recognised as the same dread object. To pre-Dark Age human pioneers of the Long March, it was the Shiver Splint. The Afarkant dynasty of the Necrons recorded its passage with a glyph meaning spear cast from death's heart. While the Thengal of myth feared it as the Thousand Moors. No army of scholars could ever successfully account for the Gallodark's long and meandering tale. Its history goes back millions of years to a time before even the Eldari had struck out from the cradle of their origin. The very first ship that made up the Gallodark was a funeral vessel of a race that called themselves 
the Skoran Ixthi. If it was ever possible to discover, let alone translate, the ship's name, it would mean she who mourns great loss in the eternal darkness bleak. The vessel was lost with all its crew and finery draped cadavers on a ritual funerary journey through the warp. The Empyrean initially melded it with two asteroids known to a forgotten ancient people as Ta'apala and Garun, named for deities of hunting, fire, wisdom and roaming. This was the first of countless such fusings. By the Galodark's fifth appearance in real space, it was composed of several hundred ships and scores of void-born asteroids. By this point, nothing whole remained of the vessel that had formed the Hulk's original kernel. The Space Hulk had become home to a score of different races, including those the Imperium would later know as the Fra'al and the Crave, and artificial species harbouring dark intellects granted by their now extinct creators, known in their time by such names as the Lava of Silica and the Eclosians of the Metal. These inhabitants formed alliances, built settlements, and waged wars across the Galodark for the sake of territory, resources, fresh meat, ambitions, rituals, or merely survival. Observers in the era Indomitus may recognise human vessels embedded in the Galodark's superstructure, both loyalist and traitor, alongside the mangled scrapships of the Orcs, the sweeping curves of Eldari craft, and even biological masses that appear to have begun their existence as Tyranid bioships. Countless others are unidentifiable, having been warped into dark spirals and branching tracts that wind into the Hulk's core like venom-laced veins. The Imperial Navy ships mangled into the Hulk's morass include the Vanksha-class battleship Victoria Magnus, long since reported lost in the war, and the Exorcist-class Grand Cruiser Queen Imperia, drawn into a warp storm in M39. Other Imperial ships include an infested reclamation craft with the cipher Everwatch, rumoured to have been employed by the Ordo Xenos, the cavernous ecclesiastical cathedral ship named St. Bernadelph's Pride, and the claustrophobic penal transport barge known as the Bone Shackle. The penal barge is almost entirely embedded, save the brutalist towers atop its bridge that poke through the Hulk's skin like fungal growths. Many of the heretic vessels of the Galodark have seemingly merged far more readily, appearing to have sunk into the superstructure as if it were a sucking mire. They include the battleship Death of Innocence and the Night Lord's cruiser Prince of Despair, echoing still with the agonised screams of the heretic Astartes' long-dead victims. The Foe Shredder, a World Eater strike cruiser, remains the haunt of bloodthirsty madmen and gore flows in its gladiatorial pits each day. Demon ships have been fused into the Galodark by the power of the Immaterium, including the Hellspite and Darkspawn. Only the most de desperate or insane of the Galodark's inhabitants ever venture to those bestial reaches. While the Space Hulk grew within the timeless warp, in real space, millennia wore on. On either side of the veil that separated the two, through which it passed several times, the Galodark changed. New occupants came and went. Some arrived by accident, their vessels consumed by the warp and melded with the Space Hulk. Others came with purpose, seeking to explore the vessel and plunder its riches. 
Aboard the Galodark, many inhabiting groups, tribes and species were wiped out in their entirety through war, hulk quakes or cavern collapses. Some were destroyed when the sections of the Galodark they occupied were torn in two by warp currents, or crushed when another vessel was amalgamated with the hulk's mass. Other individuals have been consumed by shadowy horrors, been torn apart amidst demonic incursions, or have simply turned a corner and vanished without a sound. Interlopers in the Dark The Galodark was excreted from the warp most recently after an absence from real space of 4,000 years. It did so in one of the Segmentum Tempestis' numerous regions of wilderness space bordering the Nemesis sector. Among the first vessels to reach it after its emergence was the Crute Warsphere, Rak Varoyor. The mercenaries of the ship's far-stalker Kimbans descended on the Hulk to plunder it, and once aboard encountered chimeric rodents, arachnoid scavengers, strange sentiences and unnatural entities that haunted their ships. Crute are notorious carnivores, consuming the flesh of their victims to absorb advantageous genetic traits. However, even their bloodthirsty tastes did not run to the tainted flesh of worshippers of the Dark Gods. These inhabitants of the Space Hulk, their tribes coalescing in such grim places as Void Haven, the Shuddering Chasm, and Gibbet Garden, were just one amongst many dangers facing the Crute. Imperial warships belonging to Battlefleet Nemesis arrived, and their commander, Admiral Arminius Philo XVI, recognised the opportunity to prize Archaeotech from the Space Hulk's carcass. It was then that Admiral Philo officially gave the abominable mass the name Gallodark. His ships drove the warsphere Rak Varoyor off, but numerous crew remained in the Space Hulk. Teams of specialist Imperial Navy breaches were dispatched, accessing the Gallodark via the wreck of an Imperial cruiser at its surface. The Gallodark's labyrinth of twisting corridors, caverns, ductways, chambers, armories and crevasses reverberated with increased activity. Many of its denizens had somehow perceived the Hulk's transition into real space and sought the chance to either attempt escape or prepare to prey upon the new intruders. Not all of those seeking escape were tainted or insane. Elite soldiers of the Cadian 15th Kasakin Regiment pulled themselves from warded crypts that had shielded them during the Galadark's sojourn in the warp. Their ship had been just one more victim pulled into the Space Hulk's embrace, and they had no way of knowing they were some four millennia adrift from everything they knew. Far more ancient, but no less determined, a circle of Necrons and their cryptech master were hunting the Kasakin through the Galadark, their living metal footsteps ringing from rusted transit ways. The arrogant cryptech known as Hamanet the Relentless, saw little difference between the mutated vermin he encountered and the humans he tracked through the mazes of corridors. In their attempt to discover a way off the Gallodark, the Kasakin had trained their Vox equipment on barely discernible signals, catching faint transmissions and energy signatures that might emanate from surviving ships' systems. The signals were interspersed with the whispers of malign spirits that drifted in pockets of atmosphere and flowed through rivers of leaking fuels. Some of the whispers bypassed the Kasakin's comms equipment, seemingly arriving directly in their minds. Hunters and Hunted The activity within the Galodark's depths was hidden from both mundane sight and arcane augurs, 
the tainted bulk of the Space Hulk fouling the most esoteric of detectors. Yet it was obvious from the number of ships that dogged the Space Hulk's lumbering trail that many interlopers were already hunting inside. The Hand of Malice The void dark ships of the Cabal of the Poison Tongue had been among the first to reach the Gallodark. The timing and location of its emergence from the warp had been torn from the mind of a captive oracle in a Comorite dungeon. Only a select handful of the Cabalites aboard the ships had been informed of the Space Hulk's existence at their destination. On encountering the Gallodark, the ships had dampened and dispersed their energy signatures to avoid detection by other species craft in the vicinity. The Cabal's knife-like cruisers and escorts then trailed the Space Hulk from a distance. So it was that, unseen, Dracon Nazir of the Umbralific Venom saw the comings and goings of many craft. Nazir's ship detected several that approached the Gallodark only close enough to plot its trajectory before escaping. Others grazed the Hulk's surface with teleportation technologies to filch portions of component vessels, never daring to actually set foot upon the Space Hulk. Nazir witnessed the arrival of the Rak Varoya, and several days later was aggravated by the appearance of a war group of Imperial vessels. Lumbering, as he knew them to be, the Dracon was not fool enough to discount the firepower Imperial ships could disgorge. He exerted his influence on other Drakari shipmasters to activate their mimic engines, replicating the energy signatures of crewed ships. The ploy succeeded, and most of the human warships were lured away to chase the Phantom emissions, leaving only a pair of escorts to extract the Imperial Navy breaches left inside the Gallodark. Nazir was unconcerned for the fate of those who lured the human warships away. If they perished, that meant fewer claims on the spoils. If they succeeded in declawing the Imperial ships, the human crews would provide diversions during his triumphant return to Kimura. They were not the primary prize, however. That would come straight to them, already crippled, just as Lady Malice had planned. The Fist of Justice the Dyad of Zafri was a vast prison barge under the command of Captain Ramoset. Amongst her crew were impressed companies which, under the terms of a license she held from the sector's Lord Marshal Venk, she unleashed at every port of call to seize any dregs they could. Alongside the barge's crew was a garrison of Adeptus Arbites officers. The prison barge had departed the Nemesis Sector's capital system, Herald's Meat, six years before its passage charting a circuit of three dozen worlds. Now it was two-thirds full, laden with tens of thousands of prisoners destined for the Arbites-controlled garrison world of Castrum Harg. There, the majority of the prisoners would be bound in a penal legion battalion and handed over for one final chance to serve the Emperor on a battlefront. The Dyad of Zafri's last real space translation had taken place in the Vergnachev system. There, Ramoset's impressed companies trawled through hive sumps and factorum shanties, searching for vagabonds, petty criminals, and the destitute. While she unleashed her brutal crew into the dark warrens of humanity, the penal barge's arbitrator teams drove bands of far more dangerous prisoners from Vergnachev's precinct goals into the dyad of Zafri. The prison barges' permanent arbitrators were not the only officers of Imperial Justice to board. From Vergnachev's primary precinct, Proctor-exactant Damon Colcord marched 
onto the dyad of Zafri his credentials of the highest sector clearance. An exaction squad of arbitrators followed him, surrounding a prisoner halted in a heavy penitent's brace, its misshapen head covered by an auto-penitent cowl. Captain Ramoset had no choice but to permit the proctor exactant, his squad and their alpha-level prisoner aboard. Though not arbitrators themselves, she and her officers were servants of the sector's Lord Marshal, just as Colcord was, and she had been ordered to extend passage to him without question. Colcord's charge, a dangerous psyker, was being incarcerated in a psi-containment chamber as the Diet of Zafri shuddered through a warp translation. Questioned about the turbulent manoeuvre, Ramoset told the Proctor Exactant there had been some inconsequential empiric drifts during their voyage. Concerned some weakness in the barge could be exploited by the witch he had brought aboard, Colcord requisitioned schematics, manifests and infoslates on every aspect of the barge's transit. He and his elite exaction squad combed the barge's security protocols, corroborated prisoner identities and scoured hundreds of the vast chip sections. It was during this that Colcord discovered an arsenal of weapons in a desanctified cell deep in the barge's bowels, arms he realised the captain meant to profit by. The prison barge's own garrison of arbitrators fully backed Colcord in his assessment of Captain Ramoset and followed him when he seized command of the Dyad of Zafri. Colcord and his arbitrators killed eight of Ramoset's bridge officers and shackled the remainder to their stations. He declared that when they reached Castrum Haag, he would grant them the chance to earn redemption in a penal battalion in exchange for their continued work at the ship's controls. None wished to join Ramoset in one of the barge's cells. Reeling in the prey Had the Proctor Exactant delved deeper, he might have discovered an increasing number of minute course anomalies. As the Diet of Zafri made warp away from the Vergnachev system, the ship's navigator initiated the first in a series of subtle corrections. With her third eye, she could perceive the tides of the warp, and it was only through her skill that the barge kept its course and evaded dangerous storms. With faith in their navigator, the crew under Colcord implemented her advised course for several months. No one had any inkling they had drifted so far from their route. The navigator evaded what she saw as dangers, believing she had been returned to her chartered route. In truth, her warp site had been twisted without her knowledge. When at last the navigator issued an alert, it was not a warning of their position, but an urgent demand for an emergency translation due to a warp storm suddenly forming in their path. The jarring translation to real space shorted a number of systems. This, combined with the warp's residual energies founding their augers, meant the crew were blind to the fact they had emerged near the Gallodark and were on a direct collision course. The translation was swiftly followed by the screeching of klaxons, and the bridge officers could not keep up with the deluge of alerts that soon flooded their vox feeds. These messages and damage reports were broken and garbled, their contents barely discernible. Colcord listened carefully, piecing together evidence as it came up. While the officers were still scrambling to understand what was happening, Colcord realised they were under attack. Through pools of darkness on a dozen decks, Shadow-skinned Drukhari mandrakes had emerged from their nether realm, using ice-cold blades to hack their way through terrified humans. Serving as mercenaries to Lady Malice, several of the mandrakes activated polyhedral artifacts, opening webway portals through which flooded large numbers of her Kabbalite warriors.
Together, they scythed through the panicking crew and stalwart arbitrators alike. Cabalites planted haywire charges that tore through delicate systems, frying propulsion, communication and security mechanisms. One by one, tens of thousands of cells unlocked and prisoners rampaged on sprees of murder and destruction. Some found Ramaset's arsenal and turned it on arbitrators, crew, the Xenos and each other. Its decks awash with blood and running battles and its crew incapable of averting disaster, the Diad of Zafri advanced on an inexorable collision course with the Gallodark. The Dark City's Cabals The Cabals of Komora resemble pirate bands, noble households and criminal cartels, and their numbers are made of sadists, slavers, torturers, murderers and thieves. Cabals are in a state of constant conflict. Their webs of alliances and rivalries ever-shifting in Kamora's brutally meritocratic and labyrinthine political landscape. The dark city of Kamora is home to criminals, mercenaries, hedonistic gladiatorial cliques, gruesome fleshcrafters, beasts out of nightmare and uncounted captives in visceral torment. The temporal and spatial irregularities within the webway have allowed Kamora to spread. Pocket dimensions exist beneath layers of slums and towering spires reach up towards captured suns orbited by shoals of stolen ships. A vast domain of torture and horror, the Dark City's mind-boggling form reflects the tainted Drukhari character to whom it belongs. The appetite of the Drukhari for captives is insatiable. They inflict pain, misery and horror, not only because they relish such sadism, savouring the feel of other creatures' flesh tearing as a gourmet relishes an exquisite sweet meat, but also because they are compelled to. All Drukhari suffer from a gnawing hollowness within. As a result of the terrible circumstances surrounding the fall of the Eldari, the Drukhari's souls drain from their being over time and seep into the warp to be consumed by their chaos god, Slanesh. They evade this soul debt, as some call it, by stringing out acts of cruelty and torment for as long as possible. In a way, Drukhari feed upon the pain of others. Imbibing it revitalizes their souls, granting a form of horrific immortality. Those who cannot do this wither away into a wretched simulacra of their former selves and are preyed upon, in turn, by their own kin. Towering egotism and selfish advancements at, at the expense of others is a part of everyday existence for the Drukhari. The Kabuls form Kamora's primary military strength and the upper tiers of its hierarchy. It is from their real space raids that the majority of captives are produced. Even the smallest of the Kabuls number hundreds of Drukhari, with territory spread over hideouts, safe houses and other hidden locations. The largest have millions in their ranks, control vast swaths of Kamora, along with weapon shops, arenas, toxin distilleries and docks, and have galaxy-wide influence thanks to their endless stream of raids and rampant piracy. Order from Anarchy In the murderous society of the Dark City, Drukhari, with aspirations for enormous power, which is the overwhelming majority, will easily make enemies and draw unwanted attention. This leaves them vulnerable and makes reaching the heights they wish to achieve almost impossible. 
Thus, most Drukhari seek to join a cabal. Though competition is fierce and the initiation rites extremely bloody. Within a cabal, there is the safety of numbers and a ladder of hierarchy they can climb. An attack on one cabal member is seen as an attack on them all, and so a modicum of order is maintained. Cabals will not make dangerous enemies unless they see their own position as being strong enough to withstand the potential fallout. This does not mean, however, that particular individuals in a rival cabal cannot or should not be eliminated. It just means that the way in which they are removed has to be more subtle. Thus does this power structure incentivize murder by subterfuge and careful scheming. Cabals at War Carrying out raids is the most important task for Kabbalites and Kabuls. Not only do they yield great bounties of captives and offer feasts of agony to delight in, there is also immense personal and political prestige to be gained in returning to Kamora having successfully planned and carried out a pillaging assault. By impressing their fellow Komorites, a Kabul asserts dominance over its rivals. Thus, the largest Kabuls are always raiding. Some may have scores happening simultaneously, attacking world after hapless world and winning political as well as military victories. In the same way that they scheme to acquire power by outmaneuvering their rivals, Kabbalite Archons plan their raids to meticulous detail. They torture existing slaves and employ scouts and mercenaries to acquire as much knowledge as possible of the world they intend to strike. They also pay enormous sums for more esoteric means of surveillance, such as whisper glass mirrors, flocks of invisible familiars, and parasitically invested abductees. Though costly, the rewards of a successful raid make the investment more than worth it. In battle, Kabbalites seek every advantage they can get over the enemy, viewing concepts such as honour or valour as weaknesses to be exploited. They attack where the enemy is most vulnerable and retreat where they encounter organised resistance, striking hard and fast to cripple command and control systems in order to spread confusion and terror. Ambush, hit-and-run tactics and trickery are as much a part of their arsenal as advanced weapons and they use them to full effect. Cross the Lady Malice, however slight, and you would be advised to slit your own throat with a blunt blade. It is more preferable and far, far quicker than the reprisals she can dream up. A whisper heard in the slums of Camorra. The Lady of Venom Amongst the cabals of the Drakari, none rivaled the duplicitousness of the cabal of the Poison Tongue. They are masters of secrets and disinformation, distillers of some of the most inventive and potent toxins, and crafters of elaborate ploys. Lady Malice, known to some as the Lady of Venom, is the Archon at the head of this serpentine institution. A dark genius, her lethal reach is long indeed. Even before the fateful events that led to her ascendancy, the mind of Lady Aurelia Malice ran like an incredibly complex and dangerous timepiece. A latticework of barbed cogs each clicking away. She is consummately cunning, but at all times she conducts herself with poised decorum and even a frosty politesse that makes her lethal intentions. Her hauteur and aloof manner is echoed throughout her court and only the quickest of wit survive long in her presence. The accuracy with which Malice can predict her enemy's moves borders on supernatural. 
Her detractors even dare to imply that she has a degree of psychic ability, a slur dangerous to utter, for all such powers are forbidden in Kamora. Drukhari suppressed their race's innate psychic talents for fear of permitting the warp's denizens access to their city. Most believe Malice's uncanny prescience comes from having a mind like a steel trap. Be it politically or physically, she has an astonishing ability to be elsewhere when her foe's blade falls. In Malice, the natural athleticism and lithe strength of the Eldari is honed to a razor's edge to match her intellect. One who sees Malice casually dispatch a mob of howling orcs with her exotic blade and steel-edged fan is left in no doubt that she is as lethal in action as she is in word. Only Malice could have continued to corral such backstabbing and scheming plotters as the poison tongue, but she would have it no other way. Such traits are natural means of progress within Comorite society, and under her direction the Cabal have raised them to a peerless art form. The Venomous Word of Malice The Cabalites of the Poison Tongue are universally sharp of wit, with a flair for duplicity so pronounced that they can tie their rivals in knots and dissect them with words alone. They have carved their own niche in the Dark City through constantly misleading and wrong-footing their rivals, ensuring their allies bear the cost in blood whilst they plunge the knife into the foe's delicate underbelly. They even use failure and mischance as weapons, eloquently scapegoating and framing others to achieve their means. Many an opposing Archon has been torn to shreds by their own Cabalites due to the campaigns of misinformation spread by the poisoned tongue. Nobody trusts the honeyed words of this sly cabal, but seeing as no Drukhari trusts another anyway, this is not much of a handicap. During their real space raids, the poisoned tongue put their skills of deceit to deadly use. Only worlds where the Cabal have trained their eye, inhabitants are often supplied with false signs of an impending attack, as well as fragmented messages and fleeting signatures of Drukhari raiding craft. They position their defences as best they can to repel the impending invasion, but when the Poison Tongue finally strike, it is inevitably where their victims least expect. The Cabal regularly employ infiltration tactics, assassinations, and massed poisonings to ravage their enemies before ever meeting them on the field of battle. The result is that the raiding parties of the Poison Tongue are able to swiftly run through the disordered ranks of their prey before spiriting back their captives to Kimura. Webs of Intrigue In the wake of a series of punitive massacres orchestrated by Kimura's supreme overlord, Asdrubael Vect, Malice and her cabal were nowhere to be seen within the Dark City. A few of the more arrogant survivors claimed with smirks that she had finally been caught out. Many more believed she had been party to Vect's scheme all along. In truth, Malice had seen through the lures that had resulted in many of her rival Archons falling to Vect's hired blades. Taking the poisoned tongue into a little-known spars of the webway, Malice used her rival's deaths to insinuate her reach into Kimura from afar. Malice's agents dominate several highly profitable operations throughout the Dark City. Many she controls openly, such as the Void Docks of Scarlet Harbour and the slums of Netherdale. Others she dominates through puppet cabals, whether they know it or not. Malice ensures her power is not centralised. If her many enemies gut one establishment, her others remain hidden or have enough warning for her agents to slink away in time. 
She has also established centers of information gathering and toxin distillation in hidden parts of the webway. These include a specialised manufactory said to work on substances with aid from a grand mask of harlequins the Lady of Venom has a relationship with. It is also rumoured that Malice is building a dossier of homunculi and their powerful clientele. Drukari, who can afford it, pay homunculi to keep a sliver of their flesh so, should the client die, their soul can be drawn back into a new vat-grown body extruded from the guarded flesh. If the rumours are true, Malice would hold the key to several individuals' very existence. Lady Malice set aside three of her mental calculations, ploys that would not come to fruition for many decades, as a pulse of energy under a cuticle alerted her to the approach of an underling. Malice's chamber was protected by many guardians. Most were explicit, true-born elite or hired blades from the Incubi shrines, obvious shows of power. Others were concealed, their blades and barbs evaded only by words, thoughts or scents gifted by malice to a few of those craving her ear. Some of her guards could not be evaded, only defeated through guile, wit or skill of arms such as packs of feral urgles. Such wards served to weed out those who were unworthy of her time. As one portion of malice's mind brought to the fore the information she intended to impart to the visitor, with a separate portion she began to mentally revisit a similar set of instructions given to another of her warriors. Arch Sybarite Carehill, who affects the title of Vexator. He and his warriors, the cause of deceit, are to be the fifth to board the Hulk. Others know to grant them this position, believing I have singled them out for death. Malice heard the heavy breaths of her recent exertion, could almost detect the thudding of an apprehensive heart as Arch-Sybarite Veskine at last walked through a silken veil to enter Malice's receiving chamber. She could tell the warrior strove to give the impression of insouciance after passing her urgles unscathed, adopting a slouching swagger intended to display a balance of power and deference he hoped would endear him to her. Veskine bowed fractionally, never taking his eyes from his archon. My lady, he began, all proceeds by your word. Your last cipher delivered by the scourges spoke of additional goals. I request the privilege of completing them. I and my warriors, your hand, are superior to... Dearest Vesky, Malice smoothly interrupted as she motioned with a razor fan. I am acquainted with your skills. Every single one. Your use of them is the only reason. You still draw breath. Carehill will hunt and seize a prisoner of the humans. The prisoner will be unfit for the arenas, but Carehill will bring him to me, unspoiled. The prisoner's lineage, his blood, will open vaults on Kestimus, vaults the humans believe are keyed to the blood of their commander alone. They have forgotten the child he sired in his youth, and when their weapon vaults are unlocked, their continent-cracking weapons will be in my control. Woe to Archon Urethisk when she raids Kestimas. Her death will be painted an accident, perhaps. No, that the humans were able to foresee her attack and outmaneuver her. Yes, better. Lady Malice made a graceful gesture with her hand, and a miniature portal opened like an obscene flower in front of Arch Sybarite Vesky. He reached out his hand, and from the portal's black depths a crystalline soul trap softly dropped into his palm. 
its polyhedral surface was scored with jagged runes of imprisonment. There is one who accompanies your beloved comrade, Cahill. Vipos Nyquist, his whispering sky-splinter assassin. See that he comes to me. There is a homunculus who speaks to him, and I wish to avail myself of their conversations. Veskine smiled cruelly as he closed his gauntlet around the soul trap. Malice had no doubt that Veskine would savour such a hunt and tried to torture the information out of Nyquist before sealing his essence in the soul trap. Veskine was known to prattle during torture, and she had prepared Nyquist to learn all he could in that time. Then there is the crystal gnomon of Ayath. Carehill will seek it out for me in the rotting hull of a ship from the old empire. It cost me dearly to wrest its location from the Hrud, but it will be a worthy gift to Archon Urithisk, displaying my hopes for her success and giving me a stake in her enterprise. Carehill's elixicant will deliver it under promise of peace. It will be destroyed along with the bearer and Urithisk, but I have other baubles. In the event Nyquist proves too resilient, his homunculus paymaster may have protected his asset. Take this. Malice drew a slim vial of opaque crystal from behind her razor-edged fan and placed it between them. Veskine involuntarily drew back a fraction, but his black eyes gleamed with anticipation. Its effect, my lady... It will seal the traitor's soul in his flesh and stimulate his mind with sensations appropriate to his transgressions. No soul will be released. His homunculus cannot regrow what has not died. He will live through lifetimes of agony until he reaches me for his punishment to truly begin. Malice recalled the moment she had given Nyquist a remote detonator for the vial. She hoped Veskine would survive its effects long enough for her to witness. Hand of the Archon Kill Teams When the Dyad of Zafri ploughed into the Gallodark, numerous bands of Cabalites eagerly made for it and the bounty of potential captives it contained. Those that were already on board tore through the ship and its crew, while others sped through the void in assault boats. Some Cabalites even crept in for the Hulk itself. The Coils of Deceit were one of the elite groups of hunting Cabalites that had spent weeks aboard the Galodark before the appearance of the Dyad of Zafri. They had risen to their status as a Hand of the Archon by being the most cunning, cruel and ambitious of their twisted kind, and held the begrudged respect of others as reliable agents of the Cabal. As far as they were aware, they and the other Hands alone had been gifted with advance notice of the Space Hulk's presence. They had deployed to the Galodark via an Impaler Assault Module launched from the prow of the Umbralific Venom. The large boarding craft, holding enough Cabalites to storm an ordinary ship, was lost amidst the immensity of the Galodark's bulk. Like a parasite, it bored its way through the first hole skin it reached, and Malice's hands flooded inside. While those Drukhari aboard their raiding craft awaited the prison barge, suppressing their need to inflict pain upon every scavenging party that came and went, the cause of deceit scouted a fraction of the Galodark's depths. Their midnight-hued armour, segmented and supple like insectile carapace, enabled them to prowl with swift grace through debris-strewn corridors 
and its razor-sharp edges turned their bodies into living blades. The kill team gauged the dangers within the space hog, charted alternate routes to the Galodark surface, prepared dead ends, plotted insane labyrinths, laid elaborate traps, and occasionally diverted to hunt hulk denizens whose spore they crossed. Arch Sybarite Carehill the Vexator ruled the coils of deceit with a mixture of cruel dominance and ruthless manipulation. Those under his command comprised a band of elite murderers, infiltrators, spies, saboteurs and deceivers and were amongst the Cabal's most skilled and ambitious warriors. Carehill had heard whispers of the ostentatious deeds of hands serving other Archons. The fate screed of the Cabal of the Obsidian Rose killed human sentries on Varden so perfectly their rigid corpses stood sentinel long after their lines had been compromised. The splintered crown, a hand of Vect himself, was responsible for assassinating Dracon Thanach within his bedchamber. A room the Dracon had previously proclaimed to be secured against every conceivable breach. Then there was the whispering blight of the Cabal of the Broken Sigil, who was said to have infiltrated the human forge world of Coronis Seven and inserted a barb of data into its cogitator core. This altered the temple's data psalms, corrupting them with malicious and contradictory logic anathema to the Adeptus Mechanicus. Instead of drawing strength from their machine faith, when the Cabal attacked in strength, the tech priests and their cohorts were crippled with religious terror. Carehill despised many of the Poison Tongue's warriors, but he knew the Cabal's hands of the Archon to be more insidious, inventive and malicious than any others. His own calls of deceit, thought to hold Malice's fickle favour, considered themselves superior by far to her other hands, and a perverted form of pride lurked in Carehill's black heart at their most infamous exploits, feeding only his own ego. Information its acquisition, manipulation, and distortion is at the heart of the Coils of Deceit's notorious claim of supremacy, fueling their most daring excesses. It is Vipos Nyquist, the team's rasp-voiced Skysplinter assassin, who always seems to know more than he should. None of the team, including Carehill himself, can distinguish exactly where the knowledgeable Nyquist obtains all of his information. It is the primary reason he survives in their company, their hatred and paranoia that he may know something he can use against them wars internally with the prospect that his knowledge can be used to their profit. When an unequivocal message needs to be sent to other Comorites, Carehill unleashes Threshen Zosht, his crimson duelist. The combat artist saturates herself with the invigorating pain sculpted by the flayer Cadillus Sinosian, using it to empower her blindingly quick attacks. Zosht's signature kills and the sigils she carves into her still-living victims induce terror in those yet to be caught and serve as a boastful marker of skill to other Drukhari. The victim's screams echo to chill their comrades' souls, and the creative manners in which Zosht leaves their corpse makes for a gruesome discovery for any that attempt to track the hand. Tools of Torment All of Lady Malice's Cabalite warriors are well-armed and equipped, yet those who kill and maim for a place in a hand of the Archon wield a wider array of fiendish weapons. The Coils of Deceit's flayer, Cadillus Sinosian, 
carries a variety of heavy barbed blades and is skilled at flensing skin in individual layers. Hooking and prying apart even the most obdurate ribcages and tendons, many believe he has somehow picked up more than bribes amongst his homunculus contacts. Sinosian is so proficient at generating pain that he can unleash waves of agony which are greedily fed upon by his fellow Cabalites. Many hands of the Archon are known to employ such an expert. Some are famed for their knowledge of alien biologies, eliciting the most pain from the least effort, while others are feared to have a dangerous latent psychic intuition. Many Cabalites, or hands of the Archon, are just as eager to inflict the sneering kill from afar using deadly guns. Foremost amongst these are the dreaded splinter rifles, long-barreled and elegant guns that fire a stream of jagged, crystalline slivers. Each needle shard is laced with a wide spectrum of virulent hypertoxins. A splinter rifle slays its target over several excruciating seconds, allowing the grinning wielder to savour their agonising demise as a connoisseur savours a fine wine. Though the poisons of splinter weapons can bring down even monstrous terrors, they are of limited use against heavy armour. A squad of Cabalite warriors will usually carry a far more destructive weapon for such a purpose. The blaster is a favourite, for it can cripple even large mechanisms with but a single squeeze of the trigger. Though all Cabalite warriors are expert combatants at close quarters, few have the influence needed to ensure regeneration in the layers of the homunculi. As a result, heavy gunners frequently employ powerful weaponry to slay the foe from afar. The sight links built into their splinter cannons and dark lances not only improve accuracy, but also allow the wielder to see the agony-racked look on their victim's face when each salvo hits home. Enterprising operators use mnemonic scopes to record such moments, replaying the resultant hollow ghosts upon their return and basking in the envy of their peers. Plans within plans. Other hands of Drukhari in Malice's employ had plotted numerous contingency plans to account for the Gallodark's unfortunate proximity to the unexpected point of the prison barge's emergence from the warp. One way or another, many of these schemes were crushed when the Dyad of Zafri hit the Spacehawk. Numerous Drukhari sent in to butcher the prison barge's defenders and sabotage its systems were killed instantly, along with thousands of the barge's prisoners and many of its arbitrators. Carehill and the cause of deceit had avoided the devastating impact, waiting for the right moment to begin their hunt. Vipos Nyquist emitted a screech through his surgically modified throat. He pitched the artificial sound to carry through the waning rumbles, groans, crashes, and thunderous crunches that shuddered through the gallow dark. In a relative lull amidst the cacophony, he heard an answer call from Vorka, his razor wing, and a thin scream. It echoed from the rusted decking, seepage-streaked bulkheads, and rattling pipework that led from Nyquist's position in several directions. Nyquist, the hand sky splinter assassin, was scouting ahead for Arch Sybrite Carehill, leading the coils of deceit inexorably towards the impact site of the prison barge. It had taken them over an hour to traverse this lump of human ship wreckage. At least there had been opportunities for diversion, such as the human that made its noisy way beneath him now. 
The human made so much noise shuffling through the detritus of the corridor that Nyquist had what felt like an age to position himself behind an overhanging duct. As the Monkai passed underneath his perch, Nyquist pounced with his blade drawn, pinning his prey to the deck plates with the barbs covering his armoured feet. One precise incision into the reeking creature's throat severed its vocal cords, denying Nyquist the nourishments of its guttural squawks, but giving him time to savour skinning it without alerting the rest of the hand. He had only begun to peel back the skin on the human's chest, noting the brands of chaos worship, when a subtle change in the random clinks and taps still echoing through the wreckage made him pause. For the triumphal return journey, of course, Nyquist murmured. He turned carefully to face a figure that was only a few yards behind him. Nyquist was impressed. Kea Hill had somehow managed to evade or override the Sky Splinter Assassin's personal proximity alert embedded in his helmet. Only his surgically enhanced senses had managed to detect the arch Sybarite. Stocking our larder with the likes of this filth is not what you are employed for, hissed Cahill. The arch Sybarite stalked past Nyquist and the terrified form of the cultist. Are you certain we are close? The mazes of these creatures' wrecks all look the same. It is like wandering through the slums of the Cerulean Deeps. Nyquist feigned indifference at the close presence of his dangerous lordling, though every muscle in his body tensed in apprehension. He made two swift motions with his short blade, easily cutting through the human's Achilles tendons. The agonised Monkai would not get far. The Drukari would be returning this way, and he would see his agonised prey again. Vorker and I have seen far ahead, Nyquist told Kaehill. The Sky Splinter Assassin rose and casually moved a step further away from the Arch Sybarite. Cahill's moods were whimsical. He was playing the disinterested noble for now, but Nyquist knew from past experience how that could change to savage frenzy in a heartbeat. The warp has melded this wreck with another human vessel, less fragmented, but not far from here, Nyquist continued. Through that, we can access a series of atmosphere pockets to reach the Hulk's surface, very close to the impact site of their crashed vessel. Nyquist glanced up as the plumes implanted in his cranium shivered in the minute downdraft caused by his razor wing. It landed on a bent lip of bulkhead over a doorway, its talons scoring grooves in the bare metal. Show us and be quick, Carehill snapped. Those given the task of securing the vessel have no appreciation of the prize the Archon wants. I wish to give them no more time than necessary to carve their way through those on board. The Arch Sybarite turned his helmet towards Nyquist, gifting him an imperious stare. You said we were as close as we could be. You were correct, weren't you, Nyquist? Cahill asked, slowly. Of course, Cahill. Nyquist replied as he stepped through the doorway overlooked by Vorka. There was much that was uncertain about the human ship's orientation and speed, or the violence with which the warp spat it out. Not even the prophets of malice could foresee exactly where it would end up. We deployed as close as caution allowed, Nyquist continued. 
There were others, as you know, lower in the lady's favour, who moved in closer. Now their flesh is paced between one vessel and another, or else they have been expelled into the void. I dare say the homunculi will not have finished regrowing their flesh before we return to earn Malice's gratitude. Nyquist's proximity alert now silently informed him of the approach of the rest of Kaya Hill's hand. He stepped through the doorway to lead them forward. Vorka obediently remained watching his back before swooping through after him. For the next hour or so, Nyquist kept a healthy distance ahead of the deadly team, partly out of ingrained self-preservation and partly out of a hatred for their company. Across swaying girders, over black chasms, and through breaches they forced in crumbling bulkheads, the Sky Splinter Assassin led them on towards the prison barge. Kaya Hill's desperation to reach it was understandable, Nyquist mused. There was a prisoner the Archon desired as unmarred as reasonably possible. Nyquist had been privileged to learn that Lady Manis's human agent on the ship had ensured the prisoner's cell was deep within the mass of the barge. Just one of many things he believed none of the rest of the hand knew. Far from the crumpled prow where the human ship had collided with the Space Hulk, there was a chance the human had survived impact. Nyquist reached a tangle of human stairwells. Several had been crushed together. He paused, looking down. He could hear Vorka's plaintive cry echo up from far down the twists of bent steps below. Cahill and the rest of Manus's elite hunters neared his position. What is it? Are you lost? sneered Nizarkis. Nyquist gestured upwards. The humans' ships lie in that direction, he replied. But Vorka has taught a trace of the prey below. Your pet is wrong, then, crowed Nizarkis. Never, Nyquist snapped. The prize has escaped its confinement. Confinement, that is all, and there is more. Nyquist bent down. He saw numerous prints from human boots. Heavy, reinforced, and armoured boots. The prize is hunted by others, he crooned. And they are ahead of us. Proctor exactant Damon Colcord pushed the dead form of a deck officer off him. The woman's neck ended in a ragged stump. Shackled to her post, her head had been ripped off during the catastrophic impact with the Space Hulk. Colcord shook his head, taking deep breaths of air tainted by the leak of some chemical that misted the bridge. Most of the deck officers he could see looked dead. The chemical fog occluded most of the bridge's extremities, however, and he now heard groans and screams from at least two throats in the murk. The Proctor Exactant activated his combi, a Vox pickup within his black helmet both transmitting his voice to all functioning arbitrator receivers on the ship and amplifying it throughout the bridge. All arbitrators, this is Proctor Colcord. He paused to spit a wad of blood upon the tilted decking of the command dais where he had been thrown. Arbitrators tied to the diet of Zafri, those of you who survive, enact your impact protocols. I hereby authorise emergency powers to second unit commanders, guaranteeing full proctorial powers. 
Colcord grabbed the sparking console and used it to pull himself upright before switching channels to speak solely to the officers of his exaction squad, EO-K94. EO-K94, this is our secure Voxnet. All surviving arbitrators to my position in the bridge. Our first priority is to seal this location. Calamore, Proctor, came the immediate answer from the Vox signifier, Colcor's senior arbitrator in the squad. Access confinement data from whatever damned cogitator still works. Give me the worst. Prioritize cell Upsilon 9 slash 3 dash alpha. Colcor sent a brief prayer to the Emperor. Let that filth still be there. I don't care if he's dead, just let the cursed witch be there. It was several apprehensive minutes before Arbitrator Calamore reported back. Most of Colcord's squad, at least those who had been on the bridge with him at the time of impact, now surrounded the Proctor Exactant. All nursed injuries, but their carapace armour had spared them from the worst. The most injured was Smith's, with an arterial spray jetting from his leg that Arbitrator Bedu, the squad's chirurgent, was working hard to stem. Proctor, Calamore reported. Corrupted data from a third of seals is unusable. I don't even know if those decks still exist. Of the remainder whose spirits have responded to Logos' inquiry, 73% are unbound. Many prisoners dead in their cells, but most missing. I have thousands of IDEP flashes from hundreds of decks. They're scattered everywhere. And the witch Flavian wants, growled Colcord. Incoming, sir, yes. Here, cell Upsilon 9-3-alpha, unbound and void. Calamor's voice stayed steady, impressing Colcord with his nerve. They both knew what it meant. The witch was loose. As Calamor reached the bridge with the remainder of Colcord's squad, many of the prison barge's arbitrators had already set to securing its primary access hatch to prevent any prisoner ingress. Without control of the bridge, Colcord had no hope of moving them away from the Space Hulk. If indeed that was still possible, for the damage reports appeared terminal. The Engineerium decks told him the warp drive would be on any capacity to repair, and there was only silence from the astropath's chamber. At Colcord's request, Calibor managed to bring up a schematic of the bridge's structural layout. There was a hidden corridor behind the command dais, he saw. A means of escape for the bridge crew should the primary access hatch be compromised. Colcord dispatched arbitrators Perdan and Skull to check the hidden exit route was still serviceable. The Proctor Exactant handed temporary bridge command to the most senior shipboard arbitrator, a grizzled veteran who had stood beside Colcord during his seizure of the ship from the larcenous captain. Arbitrator Perdan reported that she and Skull had access to the escape shaft. Then the prison barge finally gave up fragmented augury data to Calamore's Delvin. There was a biotracker's signature that matched the implant in the witch's subdermal implant. It had taken Calamore several minutes to calibrate the ship's sensors to filter it from the mass of human and xenos data, as well as numerous geist signals washing through the damaged sensors. Proctor, I have a tentative trace. Projecting Rutapir's direct, it's like he knows the prison barge by heart. Uh, the trace uh, tracks to the wrecked decks along the starboard prow. It's gone, Proctor. Emanations from beyond those decks is fouling the oracular projectors. Calamore finished. Emanations from beyond those decks? Questioned Colcord. You mean 
from that emperor-cursed thing out there. He's gone straight in. Gone or tried to and perished. Colcord's voice had dropped to a whisper as he worked through the implications of Calamore's evidence. Colcord straightened, and the pain of the movement made him exhale audibly. Chirurgent Bedu glanced in the Proctor Exactant's direction, but knew better than to press the issue of Colcord's injuries without request. Then that is our destination also, Colcord declared. That prisoner is our charge, EO-K94. If he has tried and failed to pass into the Hulk, we have him cornered in the mess of those decks. If he got through, then we're damned well going after him. I don't lose the Emperor's prisoners. Arbitrator Carson had retrieved the Proctor Exactant shotgun and passed it to him. Colcord took it without a word, racked the slide, and strode towards the escape shaft. He was judged guilty, Colcord intoned. The rest of EO-K94 marched after him, slamming their armoured fists once against their chest plates before chorusing the answering refrain. And our judgement is final. The Emperor's Justice The Adeptus Arbites enforce the Lex Imperialis, the Imperial Law. The institution's most visible officers, known as arbitrators, are utterly unforgiving of those who dare transgress the law. They are swift to unleash brutal punishment upon those guilty of threatening the Imperium's working, and no one is beyond their long reach. The Imperium is a ruthless and autocratic empire, built on the total obedience and compliance of its subjects. Entire generations are worked to death in monolithic manufactorums, populations are pressed into service in the Emperor's constant wars, and countless trillions endure spirit-sapping servitude in the bowels of one of the Imperium's million worlds. Corruption, brutality, poverty, disease, and every imaginable torment are inflicted on the heaving masses of humanity every day. To the people of the Imperium, the officers of the Adeptus Arbites are instruments of repression. Visible and feared enforcers of Imperial tyranny, the arbitrators uphold the Emperor's justice, but the laws they ruthlessly enforce have nothing to do with protecting the innocent or the weak. The Lex Imperialis exists to ensure the perpetuation of the despotic Imperial machine, for the alternative is anarchy and the extinction of mankind. The justice meted out by the Adeptus Arbites does not concern itself with low-level transgressions. Murder, theft, enslavement, and a whole raft of abuses of individuals and groups are far beneath their notice. Even planetary coups are merely monitored dispassionately, albeit very closely. As long as the incoming ruler fulfills their duty to the Imperium, such power grabs are seen as a natural excision of a weak ruler. Imperial worlds or systems commonly have their own set of local ordinances that can vary considerably from one to another. The penal code of the agri-world of Treskin, for example, is referred to as the Lex Treskina. What constitutes planetary laws and how they are enforced are the responsibility of the planetary governors appointed to rule the world. These powerful individuals use organised enforcers, private armies, hired thugs, or any means they deem fit to maintain order. By contrast, the primary duty of the Adeptus Arbites is to make sure that the Imperial tithe is paid in full and on time. They are concerned with crimes that affect the running of entire systems and subsectors. Their squads of armoured officers put down industrial riots that would endanger a world's production quotas, 
close down traffickers bleeding useful workers away from their rightful position, and break up illicit trading cartels that imperial subsector economies, or worse, treat with Xenos. Planetary governors who evade their tithe payments can also find themselves under the arbitrator's eyes. There are far greater institutions still who threaten the safety of the Imperium from within, lurking high in its echelons. Officials of the Adeptus Terror weave plots to acquire more power, and even the High Laws can be tempted into the arms of corruption. If anything, the Adeptus Arbites watch these lofty individuals with even greater attention. The Adeptus Arbites also monitor the human side of the Imperial type, ever watchful for laxity in a world's duty to submit soldiers to the Astro Minotaurum and round up mutants and unsanctioned psychers. They shackle demagogues, preaching, rebellion, and track down incursions of dangerous narcotics. An appearance of the signature mirror-visored helms worn by Adeptus Arbites officers are also feared by void merchants, chartist captains, and even rogue traders. Arbitrators have been known to board ships mid-route, searching for forbidden cargoes. In all such ways, the Adeptus Arbites may come into contact with other organisations who wield authority to punish the guilty. To name but a few, the Ecclesiarchy and the Adeptus Mechanicus hunt down varied blasphemers and heretics. The Sisters of Silence pursue witches and the authority of the Inquisition brooks no superior. Still, justice under an all-encompassing law must often be seen to be done, and the Adeptus Arbites' experiences within and without their fortified courthouses mean arbitrators are petitioned for aid by imperial organisations and far more than they instigate confrontations with them. Some arbitrator operations may well be random acts to keep the fear of such searches at the forefront of citizens' minds. Many more are the final stage in a long trail of evidence procured through torture, intimidation or more esoteric techniques. A great many precincts of the Adeptus Arbites employ oracular engines to discern crimes before they have ever been committed. Though known by the capital term, the Emperor's Gaze, no two devices are the same. Some are towering biomechanical contrivances in which suspected seers, prophets and oracles are wired to impart their foresight while others are clanking monstrosities resembling massive scales that weigh the entrails of specially bred caniforms. The lower Thulos precinct in particular employs a baited and trapped maze the size of a city suburb in which swarms of rats doused in holy unguents are released. The pattern of their messy ends or the routes they take are then tallied for judicial insight. The Adeptus Arbites consider themselves superior to other agencies enforcing their own edicts, for arbitrators judge and punish to a set of laws whose origins, like that of the organisation itself, is thought to predate the foundation of the Imperium. Unlike any other known writ, the Lex Imperialis is enforced, the Imperium over. Its collation is thought to have been instigated by Malkador the Sigilite. Legend portrays Malgador as the most trusted of the Emperor's servants, and many of the law's most ancient decrees are believed to be transcriptions of the Emperor's own voice. Such provenance carries huge weight, and those privileged enough to enforce the law's tenets are zealous crusaders in the name of justice. You have been judged guilty of violating the Lex Imperialis. This is the law of the Emperor's realm. It is his law. If, as you loudly claim, I have erred in my judgment, he would strike me down where I stand. 
If you were innocent, he would have interceded to shield your flesh from my shotgun shell. But then you would stand guilty of wasting my ammunition. Be thankful I have saved you from committing such a crime. Arbitrator Les Kanzer, 5th Precinct, Colloran Hive, addressing the adjudged. Precincts. The precinct fortress of the Adeptus Arbites are present on most Imperial worlds. Only Forge worlds in the grip of the Adeptus Mechanicus, the homeworld fiefdoms of Space Marine chapters, and cardinal worlds of the Ecclesiarchy have the power to refuse an arbitrator's presence. Other worlds harbour at least one precinct fortress, and the majority boast many. These fortified installations perform the roles of bastion, barracks, fortified courthouse, jail and torture chamber. Their glowering presence is an unmistakable symbol of imperial authority, meaning many uprisings, rebellions, coups and invasions target them out of hatred, fear or strategic prudence. The arbitrators are therefore often the first line of defence against the corruption of an imperial world. Arbitrators on a world owe no allegiance to its planetary governor, hereditary imperial commander, or whichever title its ruler assumes. The arbitrators of a given precinct fortress identify the guilty and meti out the verdict in the precinct they oversee. This may be a section of a single hive city, a portion of an inhabited continent, or even an entire planet. Within its bounds there may be one precinct fortress or several. Smaller precinct houses supplement the larger bastions, or are the only secure building in sparsely populated precincts. Each precinct is ruled over by a marshal of court, though some are large enough to host several. Typically, at sector level stands a Lord Marshal, to whom all the precincts in their sphere of influence report to. Some Lord Marshals grant the precincts under them huge autonomy. Procedures, uniforms, titles and priorities delegated to marshals of court. Others rule their fiefdom with an iron fist, operating an effective one-person monopoly on justice for the countless trillions of imperial citizens subject to their whim. The enormous number of laws, edicts, precedents and decrees that make up the Lex Imperialis grow more Byzantine with each passing year. They are collected into the Book of Judgment, the physical embodiment of the law, but no single tome could ever contain the millennia worth of legal prescription. Representations of the Book of Judgment exist in stone, adamantine, or some stranger material in precincts throughout the galaxy. Their proportions range from miniature sigils worked into chains of office to mundane tomes upon pedestals, or sculptures that loom over those before them. The physical Book of Judgment is kept within the Adeptus Arbites fortified library on terror the Bibliocrypt Judicorum. Overseen by the Warden Judge of the Adeptus Arbites, this vast library is said to have never stopped growing. Teams of Delver servitors sent to expand its cavernous space miles underground are reputed to haunt forgotten tunnels, their bio-patterning malfunctioning and their digging ceaseless. Half-glimpsed creatures and artificial climates to preserve crumbling records are amongst the dangers of this repository. For instance, Biblioverms, serpentine predators, haunt the lesser-used passages, feeding on the carbonaceous mould of rotting lexicons as well as unwary archivists. Arbitrators The fighting forces of the Adeptus Arbites are the Arbitrators. They are warriors of imperial justice and the militant arm of the Lord Marshals and Judges. 
exempt from any prohibitions on operating warp-capable craft, such as planetary governors must abide by, the Adeptus Arbites are capable of deploying in force to a planet, void station, or ship upon which their intelligence has revealed the taint of criminal activities or the inaction that allowed it. Some precinct fortresses have the numbers and equipment to fight entire wars if need be. The men and women who dispense justice as arbitrators are grim and uncompromising individuals. Many are products of the Scholar Progenium, an imperial institution that raises the orphan sons and daughters of fallen imperial servants. Those who pass through one of the organization's scholums and survive its merciless drill abbots are honed in mind, body and spirit. They are indoctrinated into the imperial creed and forged into unwavering zealots fit to undertake a number of roles to serve the emperor. It is often those who have risen to dominate their fellow progena, as the youth of the scholar progenum are known, through force of will or strength who prove ideal for a role with the Adeptus Arbites. Arbitrators must be harsh in the execution of their duty. Mercy is a weakness unbecoming of an officer of the Lex Imperialis. Exaction Squad Kill Teams Precincts of the Adeptus Arbites, or highly placed overseers of the Lex Imperialis, authorise a number of different specialist operations that are carried out by highly experienced arbitrators. Exaction squads are amongst the most highly skilled of those dispatched, for their missions to hunt down heinous criminals require them to secure their target alive. All arbitrators, even those who go on to specialise in far more esoteric or scholarly skills, are trained principally in martial matters. Arbitrators are taught to crush the opposition where they stand and to keep on striking until there is no chance of them standing again. Those arbitrators identified by their superiors as possessing the potential to learn additional skills are put through exhaustive training in specialist techniques. Some of these techniques are devised to counter specific threats, while others cover the general use of complex equipment, technical skills under fire, counterintelligence of criminal enterprises, and more. The most experienced and level-headed arbitrators are drilled in methods to focus their efforts and momentum on one target above all others. These men and women form exaction squads when widespread punitive brutality and executions are deemed insufficient or could even hinder efforts to confront a greater threat. It is the role of exaction squads to hunt down and seize individual transgressors without killing them so as to enable their incarceration, interrogation, or some other dire fate. Such arbitrators ruthlessly bludgeon aside any who come between them and their targets, or cut them down in sweeps of heavy, short-ranged firepower. It makes no difference to the arbitrators dispatched on a mission whether such obstructions are actively working against them, or are simply unwitting pawns thrust in the exaction squad's way to slow them down. They are crushed to clear a path to the one they have come for. The individuals exaction squads seek are sought for capture rather than immediate execution for a number of reasons. For example, some targets may be links in a chain of corruption, and information they provide through painfully extracted confessions can lead to more highly placed transgressors. Even given the arbitrator's wide-ranging authority and the assuredness of their quarry's guilt, justice must sometimes be seen to be carried out. High-ranking adepts, nobility, military leaders and others with wealth, influence or power may warrant the privilege of a trial. These ostentatious proceedings, layered in ceremony of archaic origin, 
served to legitimise the guilty party's punishment and assuage their supporters from rising to rebellion in their defence. Some targets may be wanted by agents outside of the Adeptus Arbites organisation. Exaction squads of the Adeptus Arbites are acknowledged as being extremely reliable hunters and trappers, and their skills are highly prized. For example, when an Inquisitor pulls together the strands of a complex investigation, they may find that at the end of each is a highly dangerous threat. To secure these targets, the Inquisitor may requisition an exaction squad. Only select arbitrators have the level of ruthless determination required to face the risk of Xenos contamination or alpha-level psyche such missions may involve. Furthermore, given that the arbitrators may have to hold such dangerous enemies in custody until the Inquisitor or one of their agents can collect them, officers with great force of will and discipline are absolutely necessary. More rarely, the Adeptus Arbites may agree concordats with the Adeptus Mechanicus, Adeptus Ministorum, a house of the Navis Nobiliat, or some other body who wishes to bring in a target with outstanding grievances under their own codes. Such agreements are usually to a Lord Marshal's benefit, granting their precincts and officers additional resources and assets and access to locations or information they would not usually enjoy. When a target has been identified that must be seized alive, a Marshal of Court, Judge or Lord Marshal appoints a Proctor Exactant to the case. These veteran proctors move from mission to mission. After handing over one prisoner, perhaps broken, probably bruised, but undoubtedly alive, for whatever fate awaits them, the proctor exactant is handed their next case. For this, they select the arbitrator's best place for the task at hand. Some proctors exactant restrict themselves to arbitrators from one or two precincts, while others review personnel data crystals from dozens under the remit of their Lord Marshal. It is commonly left entirely to the Proctor Exactant's judgment which arbitrators to select for their exaction squad. Those they choose are relieved from their duties and assigned to the Proctor Exactant's authority for as long as the mission takes. On the hunt, the Proctor Exactant's experience enables them to make excellent use of the skills of their hand-picked officers. The criminal's methods and contacts are studied, the better to predict the miscreant's movements and likely tactics. Exaction squads can detect the merest genetic trace using advanced biosamplers and track their quarry using specialised cyber mastiffs. They wield heavy-gauge combat shotguns and oversized shot pistols capable of firing rare shell types only issued to elite squads, blowing away the fugitives' minions. Finally, a flurry of blows from coruscating shock mauls is commonly enough to render the most threatening criminal compliant enough to suffer the agonising clasp of a penitent's brace, and begin their extended stay at the Marshal of Court's pleasure. Notable arrest records of EO-K94. The exaction squad known by the designation of EO-K94 was only one of the teams of arbitrators that followed Colcord's lead into the Gallo Dock. He assumed emergency authority to order the formation of other exaction squads to hunt escaping prisoners in the Space Hulk but few could hope to match the trail of arrests already made by EO-K94 in pursuit of its prey. Prisoner Ma Arrakos During EO-K94's mission to hunt down a witch at the request of Inquisitor Flavian, the squad's investigations led them to hive thrust on the mining world of Gervan Yadra. Ma Arrakos was one of four kingpins who controlled production in the hive city, 
their efficiency meaning they were of little interest to the exaction squad. She came to EO-K94's attention, however, when the squad discovered she was behind the disappearance of thousands of mutants overseeing their shipment off-world. As far as culpable adepts in her pay knew, the intent was to reduce the number of mutants rounded up by the planetary governors and thereby evade purges that would have disrupted her operations. Yet, EO-K94 identified Ma Arrakos as a vital link in a much wider conspiracy of illegal labour movement that damaged production rates in a number of systems. Biosampling by the squad's malocator damned her when Xenos taint was discovered. The mutants she was moving from world to world were spreading the gene seeder curse. EO-K94 stormed Arakos's fortified manse and executed her lieutenants. The crime lord was shackled and dragged away for interrogation to discover how much higher the corruption went. Prisoner Shen Thamas Answers prized from a number of sources, informants and contacts identified by the squad's revelatum were followed to the agri-world Drogon, which was in the midst of a coup orchestrated by Thamas, Sion, or Kurzak, of the Shen lineage. EO-K94 suspected Inquisitor Flavian's target which had taken refuge amongst the courtiers and servants of the Sion's court. The arrogant nobleman dared to decry the arbitrator's intrusion, which led Colcord to look more closely at Thamus's activities. EO-K94's Vox signifier unearthed comms traffic that condemned the nobleman. It revealed that he had been the paymaster behind increased piracy under his predecessor in a ploy to tarnish the failing government while diverting imperial arms to his own armies. Prisoner ID uncorroborated. The arrest of Thamas had been bloody and violent. Colcord's arbitrators acted upon the convention of guilt by indenture, unleashing imperial justice upon the Kurzak's inner circle. Excruciation was overseen there by EO-K94's medical specialist, who brought the guilty back from the brink of death time and time again. Through the half-truths and screamed confessions, a trail was unpicked back to Thamus's holdings on Vergnachev. Inquisitor Flavian's target, which operated there under Thamus's protection, using its powers of domination and flesh-shaping to further the nobleman's influence, though who was really in control was unknown. EO-K94's gunner scythed down a mob under the mutant's mastery with a storm of fire. Three of Colcord's officers were killed before the unsanctioned cycle was subdued, struck with repeated blows from shock mauls and immobilised in the chemical discharge of a Weber. With their charge bound and shackled in a sigh-suppressing cranial baffle, Colcord sent a summons for secure transport. He eventually received word back that the ship arranged by Flavian had been attacked by unknown assailants. However, a prison barge was en route that could house the witch. Prisoner Ramoset Kara E EO-K94's primary mission was almost complete upon making contact with the dyad of Zafri's commander, Captain Ramoset. The prison barge's route, while meandering, would eventually pass through Colcord's destined system. His discovery of the weapon's cache complicated matters. Ramoset had seized them over months, taking them from the low-life dregs her crew legally abducted. With her intention to sell them on to black markets and underworld contacts along her route, who knew how many uprisings they would arm, or how many tithe quotas would be unmet thanks to her and her crew's greed. At least one of her deck officers was killed by the squad's RVR Cyber Mastiff before it reached Ramoset 
and dragged her by the throat before a glowering Kolkord. I hope you've enjoyed my reading of the narrative section of the Soul Shackle rulebook. Don't forget to check out my Patreon if you enjoy this and you want more narrative reading. Let me know and I will consider it. And don't forget to check out my Vantage Point podcast. And on the off chance you're watching this from my Vantage Point podcast, don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Glass Half Dead. Kill Team, yay.